Episode 42 of Dads from the Crypt, Tales from the Crypt podcast. My name is Jason. I am joined by Mondo. Hello. Joey's got the night off, but we also have a returning guest. She was on the Easel Killia episode, and her name is Danica. Welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. No problem. Uh, that, thanks for coming on. I know this is a very special episode for you, so I'm glad we can make that work. Before we get into that, a couple announcements. Um, we next... So this is coming out on, let's see, the 12, uh, 13th, 14th, 15th. The next week, May 22nd, we will not have an episode coming out, but we will have our live YouTube Q&A with the one and only William Sadler. That is uh, noon West Coast time uh, on our YouTube channel, just uh, YouTube for dads from the crypt. Come on, join us. Uh, you can, it's gonna be the William Sadler Variety Show um we're gonna have uh some music that he's made that we're gonna be playing and he'll be taking all kinds of questions and you know we'll be hanging out so come on uh, ask some questions and then uh we'll be posting the audio to the uh podcast channel afterwards and if you can't make it or you just want to send something ahead of time feel free to email us at dads the crypt at gmail.com or dm us on twitter or instagram or send carrier pigeons We'll be doing more and more. We'll, we'll we'll do some social media leading up to it too. And if yes. you ever want to see William Sadler eat fire, this might be your chance. Maybe <laughs> he might just eat fire. Um, the next announcement is actually something really cool. If you're in the Southern California area, there's a big um, horror convention happening the first weekend in June called Monster Palooza in my hometown of Pasadena, California. Um, get tickets now because I know I think Saturday is sold out, so you can only get Friday and Sunday individually, or you have to get them at the door. And you don't want to wait till that because that's just standing in one extra line that you really don't want to stand in, and it's outside. So uh, I'll be there on Sunday. Um, so it'll be a great time. It's a really good, cool convention if you're in the area. Um, great guest Tim Curry is going to be there. I think most of the Scream cast is going to be there. Nev Campbell. Uh, Ski Ulrich, Matthew Lillard, and Jamie Kennedy are all going to be there too. So, and, and so will Jason from Dads from the Crypt. And Jason from Dads from the Crypt. Are you going to have stickers if anybody comes up and strokes your yes. beer? Yes. Okay. Yeah. If you come stroke my beer, I got stickers for you. <laughs> and if that makes you uncomfortable, um, you can just say just ask. You can just say hi. He'll give you a sticker. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, but tonight we will be we will be discussing. On a dead's dead, I can't talk tonight. Man. We'll be discussing on a dead man's chest. I didn't do my vocal warm ups. Uh, this episode premiered on June 27th, 1992. Mondo, hit us with a plot synopsis. All right, here we go. So it opens up with our friendly neighborhood crypt keeper, and he's dressed as Elvis, the uh, the king of rock and roll. Um, also, oh. uh, Love it. Side note, uh, there's a new Elvis movie coming out um, pretty soon. Yeah, it actually looks pretty good. Yeah, it looks decent. I was, you know, not to go super off track, but I was always under the impression that Elvis was kind of uh, frowned upon for his uh, obvious stealing of, of music from black artists. And then um, there's a guy on Twitter who's a Elvis historian that was talking about how um, he was actually kind of in intentionally shunned by the media and people kind of put this persona on him because they didn't want him to be famous when he actually did a lot of activist work for um, for black musicians back in the day. He was a big uh, big supporter of Malcolm X and of MLK and how he would intentionally try to take black singers with him on tour in order to get them notoriety. So um, just, just interesting stuff to I read about. But Yeah, I'm very curious how they handle a lot of those more controversial aspects. Yeah, but... because I'm honestly really in the dark and all that stuff, so I just thought it was interesting. But anyhow. Back to our, our good friend, the Crypt Keeper. Uh, he uses the line, don't be ghoul, which I think is just a <laughs> wonderful pun. And then he talks about how he likes to play by ear and his guitar pick has an ear on it. So uh, I thought, I thought that was a really awesome. good, uh, man, like they're just, they just nail these wraparounds, right? 
so anyhow, we go to we, we opened up with a band called Exorcist, who's playing in their local venue, uh, which is funny because there actually is a thrash metal band called Exorcist, but uh, I'm taking that the name Exorcist is a play on the fact that William uh, William Friedkin directed the episode, and obviously he's uh, uh, the director of Exorcist. Was the band Exorcist around in the nineties? Um, if I'm not mistaken, they came out in the late '80s, and I think they didn't really say where this this show was set at, but it looks like LA. Like they kind of show the, the when they oh, go yeah, the, the Skid Row and LA. everything. But yeah. they they were one of those LA thrash metal bands that never really got super famous because they were just I, I don't know like they were they're kind of a more un, and it's kind of weird to say, but a more like street version of Slayer maybe. I don't know. They weren't my cup of tea. <clears throat> Anyhow, uh, they're playing, and then uh, the frontman, Danny, uh, announces his bandmate, Nick, who is the uh, guitar player extraordinaire, is married, and he introduces his wife, uh, Scarlett, who is played by Tia Carrere, uh, which is really cool, because this is probably coming right off of the first Wayne's World. Yeah, same uh, year, at least. Where she was the Cassandra from the band Crucial Taunt. Um, but anyhow, uh, so she gets booed by the ladies in the crowd, because they're like, dude, we don't want our guy off the market. Uh, but then... Uh, Danny pulls her up on stage and just like demeans her in front of the whole crowd, which is super uncomfortable and super not cool. And uh, the one thing I loved about this is, is Nick puts his guitar down, runs off stage, and is like, fuck you, buddy. And in the back, they have an altercation. And I love the fact he just stands up for us. He's like, dude, that is not cool. You cannot talk about my, my, my woman that way. And um, Danny, though, also goes to the back. And then you realize the band is still supposed to be playing. And, and Danny's being total fucking Axl Rose here. And trying to upstage the uh, uh, the upstaging, um, so that happens. And then we meet Van, Van De- Vendetta, who is a. Uh, I, I think she's. I think she's safe to say that she's probably Danny's girlfriend. Mm-hmm. I'm this gonna, is a little more on the in the groupie. Just a groupie. Just a just a groupie. Okay. Not, maybe not just a groupie, but they they definitely yeah. had a, a past a past there. Top groupie. Top group. Was it mother <laughs> mother hen or something? Yeah, Just, something. <laughs> you guys know. Speaking more. of which, um, R.I.P. Cynthia Plastercaster. What? Uh, the, the woman you know, who used to make impressions some... of uh, rock stars' penises. Oh no, I've, I've never heard of that. You never. Oh, I've never heard. We're gonna go down the rabbit hole in there. She's awesome. Or done a snakele. Um Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so Vendetta shows off this really cool snake tattoo she has around her breast and then says, Hey, you should go see my artist. And, um, he's like, yeah, I'll go see your artist. And then Danny says, well, maybe you can, maybe I can help you find my steak. And that's pretty weird because like, I would figure if he has a pet snake at home, he would know where it's at. Why would she know where it's at? That's just weird. Uh, we yeah, also, that's what, that's what he meant. I'm just saying that I take things literally. And we also point out Danny has some terrible tattoos, just some terrible tattoos. He needs some good work. Um, so they go back, they go back to Danny's place or to actually, we find out later is Nick and Scarlett's place. And Danny just lives there. They try to find Danny's snake. Uh, it looks like it's just not working the way it should. And they just kind of can't find a snake. So, uh, Nick confront Nick is then they go to Nick and, and Scarlett and Nick's just pissed off and he's like all right I'm just gonna go kick this guy's ass Scarlett convinced him to calm down like, let's talk to him and then they uh, go back towards the bed and I'm pretty sure they're just gonna have some dessert and relax and have a good time and just just chill out for the night because it's probably getting pretty late Nick also has some a weird patch of stomach hair I noticed like, I don't know what's up with that but <laughs> later on he doesn't have it but in that scene he's got a weird patch of stomach hair. Uh, Maybe this is my you copy. You're looking at different parts of this show than I was, dude. Sorry, man. If anyone's got some real weird fuzzy stomach hair, I'm gonna look at. It. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. It's fine. And uh, I'm not shaming him over his stomach hair. It was just just looked weird. That's just life. How it is. Like we all have. I have weird splotches of back hair. Like what are you gonna do? Can't help it. Anyhow, uh, Vendetta and, and Danny go to meet. Uh, was it Farouche or Farouge? Farouche. 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 Okay, that's how I wrote it. I wasn't sure the pronunciation. So they meet the uh, they go to meet the tattoo artist. They're walking through a back alley and they find his area. And then they they kiss and she walks away. And they, by the way, these two people are somehow the least sexy couple ever to be on screen. Like they have like no chemistry together on screen. It's just, they're super awkward together. And I just don't want them to be in the same room with each other. Um, <laughs> uh, but they go into Farouge's place and he has just a, a a weird mix of decor from kind of all around the world. There's not a whole lot of theme to it, which I actually think is kind of cool uh, because if you ever meet tattoo 
tattoo artist, if you know, like, like, like you have a lot of tattoos, you've met tattoo artists, they, they never have like one style in their little tattoo booths. It's all kinds of usually cool stuff that people have given them and cool stuff that other artists have given them. So I thought that was a really nice touch um, for, for the tattoo shop. Um, and, but for some reason, though, like uh, Farouche is there, who is played by Heavy D, uh, but his boys are just nowhere to be found. I, I, I couldn't find the boys anywhere. So Farouche tells Danny that he finds what's inside of people and he brings it outside. Uh, he says, your skin has a story to tell and I'll find it, which is uh, foreshadowing uh, what we're about to see. Uh, and then he starts to do a, he, he basically has his helpers hold Danny down and he starts working on the tattoo. And he's doing, it's the old fashioned uh, tapping style of tattoo. And I don't remember what it's called, and I meant to look it up before the show, because it's called something like a, a keku or kaku, and it literally means like, 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 like pounding ink or something like that. And I think they call the tattoo something like utu, uh, which literally means darkened skin. And I'm sounding way smarter than I am here because I actually had a friend go and get one done. He explained this years ago over some beers. Uh, but it's a really, really cool tattoo style. Uh, I've always wanted to get one done like that because it just seems it's such an organic way to do it. But anyhow, um, he then talks about his eye patch and why he doesn't have an eye. And he says a guy named Baby Doc from Haiti didn't like the tattoo. So he took out his eye with a salad, salad fork because Baby Doc just didn't know that tattoo removal was a thing. Is that the son of Papa Doc? Dude, you're just hitting these references tonight, and I'm so tired, and I'm not getting them. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> so uh, dur uh, during the tattoo, Danny has a vision of Scarlet bleeding in a bathtub, foreshadowing. Um, and the finish, then you, see, you see the finished tattoo, which ends up being a dragon, starting at what appears to be Scarlet. Excuse me. Um, which really upsets Danny because he sees, like, oh, crap, that's Scarlet, and he refuses to pay. And then you see Farouk standing by the door, and he says, you'll pay later. It's almost like he found love and he didn't know what to do with it. Um, Scarlet confronts Danny when he gets home and tells him off on behalf of Nick. It's obvious that Danny's super egotistical and he's lazy. Uh, most vocalists are, just to be honest with you. Like, uh, if you if all you do is do vocals for a band, you usually just like don't even help the band load up. It's just how you are. Like, you should learn an instrument and be useful. Uh, Danny then finds his manager uh, Toland and he tells him that he'll keep uh, Nick in line because he's trying to put all this on Nick. Um, if you look at Tolan and just look at him closely, he kind of looks like a midnight rider, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So uh, Danny then confronts Vendetta about the tattoo, who's actually really surprised. And then she says, well, Farouche is magical in his work. This is what he does. But she goes, don't worry about it, man. If you don't like it, I know a good plastic surgeon. Um, we have, I know tattoo removal, which seems reasonable. So Danny is actually the one part in this episode, Danny's reasonable. He goes, yeah, I should get this removed. Um, so, uh, Danny apologizes for being a jerk, and then you see Vendetta walk over to him, and he's sitting down, and she kind of kneels down right by his waist, and I'm pretty sure she's going to give him a foot rub, because if I was in a bad mood, that's what I would want. Uh, so when next time we see them in the surgeon's office, and he's getting the tattoo removed, and A, he, he pulls the tattoo, the surgeon basically goes, wow, I've never seen that before. Which is something you never want to hear at the doctor's office. <laughs> like, that's just bad all around. <laughs> That's what the doctor said. That's what the urologist told me when I was getting a vasectomy. It was really weird. Um, any, anyhow, uh, he takes a he takes a bandage off, and it's like just red, blotchy stuff. But you can still see Scarlet's face in face in there, um, which is pretty crazy. So anyhow, he Vendetta kind of recommends that he gets rid of Scarlet. And I think at first she means like just get her away from the band. Like she's the kind of insinuating she's a Yoko Ono, which she's definitely not, by the way. Um, so he meets with Nick and he tries to mend things. And you can tell he's trying to be like a bro again. And Nick is very like, eh, all right, man, whatever. And then you see uh, Danny kind of going crazy where he's remembering what Scarlet said to him. And then he starts just scratching at his chest, like trying to get this tattoo off while he laughs maniacally, which is a really weird. It's really weird, kind of weird how that scene goes from him and Nick sharing almost like a wholesome moment to them him clawing at his chest and, and being all maniacal. So next thing you know, the band's playing on stage for a sound check, which is one of like, the craziest sound checks I've ever heard because they're just going at it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and there's like people there too, like jamming. It's... Well, as for sound checks, you generally have people that are associated with the band. So they only show Vendetta there and I think Toland, um, which makes sense why they would be there. So not the craziest thing, but like normally you wouldn't have the whole stage production. You would just be playing. Uh, but anyhow, Danny's just sneaks away, and I don't know where their house is. Is it attached to this club? I kind of didn't get that because he just walks off stage, and now he's back at their house. Yeah. 
but he meets her and he, he he goes into the bathroom and she's like, "You're done? Are, are you done already?" And she turns around and she sees Danny, and Danny chokes her, which super uncomfortable scene, by the way, like super uncomfortable death scene. Um, he chokes her, slams her head into the wall, and then leaves her for dead in the bathtub, just like his vision was when he was getting the tattoo. Uh, so Nick comes backstage after the sound check and he's looking for her and Danny's like, I haven't seen her. And then uh, he tells Vendetta, hey, oh, by the way, just to let you know, I got rid of her. And she's like, oh, great, you killed her. And she gets super excited, which is also really weird. And then they start going at it again, just proving that they're the worst couple in the history of media. Uh, but then she touches his chest and he pulls away and he freaks out and he pulls off his bandages and you see that his tattoo is just fully back there. But what's interesting is she says, I, I don't see it. What are you talking about? I can't see that tattoo. Insinuating that only he can see it. So Nick's back on stage and he's all like, dude, I, I'm supposed to play this show, but I'm worried about my girlfriend, obviously. I haven't seen her. And then uh, Tolan comes back out and he goes, hey, like Danny won't leave his dressing room. So Nick's just pissed, gets off the stage, and he's banging on the door and saying, hey, man, what's up, what's up, what's up? And next thing you know, they're all together playing on stage. I think Danny has a shirt on for like the second time in the entire episode. And Danny sees his chest kind of like pumping out, like expanding while he's playing. No one else can see this, though, apparently. Uh, he runs off stage, and then he gets confronted by Vendetta. And he blames her for everything and just like... And one of the most uncomfortable scenes in Tales of Crypt history uh, just slaps her backstage and beats her up. And what's so uncomfortable about that is everyone's just watching. Like, no one steps in and is like, what the hell's going on? Like, all these people are just watching and just okay with what happens. And that's, yeah. Uh, he goes into his, his, his dressing room and he, see, he feels, he pull, takes his shirt off and he sees the tattoo coming like through his chest. The dragon now is... Um, that's coming off his chest, which actually is a really cool, really cool practical mm -hmm. effect with the dragon poking through and poking at it. And so he smashes the mirror, and you see him grab a piece of, of the mirror. Um, at this point, uh, Nick comes backstage, and he sees Vendetta, and she's being consoled by her friend. And she goes, Danny killed her. Danny killed Scarlet. So Nick obviously freaks out, as anybody would, uh, saying that their wife has just been killed. Uh, he goes to uh, confront Danny and kicks in his dressing room door. And Danny's standing there. And he turns around, he's got the mirror in hand, and his chest is just destroyed and mangled. And he holds up his flesh where the tattoo used to, where the tattoo was, and, and basically says, I got rid of it, I got rid of it. And uh, Nick is obviously like, what the fuck is going on? And then we come back, and there is the Crypt Keeper, now with a sick-ass mustache, and uh, with a new full band he's put together. Put, he put together a full band in a short period of time, I'm pretty impressed by that. You know how hard it is to find a drummer? Uh, and uh, he goes, sorry guys, I have to practice my garage band. You're never too cold to rock and roll. End scene. End scene. End show. All right, thank you, Mondo. Uh, Danica, why don't you start us off? What do you think of this episode? So, this has always been possibly my favorite episode of Tales from the Crypt, but also for me, the most problematic um, because like Tia Carrera, I am Filipina, Chinese and um, Hispanic. I also have a couple other things in there, but growing up, there were very, very few people like me on screen. So to see this as a young person, somebody who is like me, just violently murdered, um, left an impact and it made me want to interrogate what I saw as far as media representation of Asian American women. I can say that um, on the positive side, this episode doesn't exotify Scarlett. It doesn't sexualize her. She's the most fully clothed woman in this entire episode. Mm -hmm. Vendetta is hanging out like tits everywhere constantly. Scarlet is dressed relatively conservatively, except for maybe the opening scene when she's at the show and when she's in the robe in the bedroom and then later the robe in the bathroom. But and even the robe in the bathroom wasn't really sexualized. It was just no, what it was what it was what they easily could have gone the route of oh she's going to be naked in there and but no like that's what's what you do if you're getting ready for a bath. I thought that was uh, well done. All right, even the men in this episode are more sexualized than she is. I mean, everybody is like <laughs> yeah. hog out. So. Um, but rewatching this now in the light of what happened in Atlanta last year and what happened to Christina Unalee, who was killed uh, in her bathroom in New York earlier this year, it was just 
a brutal reminder that because of how the media has depicted Asian American women for so long, some people still have these prejudices that would inspire one to precipitate these attacks. I don't know. Um, I did rewatch it with a white man this time. And he was like, well, you know, I think that Friedkin is really uh, interrogating the Orientalism that many men in Western cultures have because uh, what's, what's Yolvaska's character's name? Danny. Danny? Yeah. Danny clearly wants to view Scarlet not just as a Yoko type, but as a dragon lady. Like Farouche brought out what was in him. That's what he saw, that she is literally a dragon lady. That's what's on his chest, under right. his skin. Like that is the idea that he has of her, despite the fact that Scarlet, all of her demands uh, that she makes are reasonable. She just married this man. They would like to have space. This dude is freeloading off of them. He's a no talent that fucks up their shows. <laughs> she would like to set some fucking boundaries. Like, fuck everything. And she's not, even when she is trying to assert herself to him, she's not, um, she's not unreasonably abrasive. She's just trying to be strong and state her yeah. peace, you know? Uh, so, I think even when she yells at him, she doesn't yell at him out of anger. It's out of frustration. Right. Uh, you can definitely right. feel, it's kind of like everyone's had that, like, uh, you know, I'll say my father will live with this for a while and I had to yell at him, not out of anger because I'm like, dude, like you're, you're fucking 65. Get the fuck out of my house. <laughs> and I think that's where she was coming from. She was just frustrated the situation. Like, I thought that was really well done. Yeah, she does nothing. Like, there's no setup or anything to explain why he's so pissed at her. Other than like, oh, there's no chick around that like you know wants me to behave like a responsible adult. Like, it's just, right. yeah, it's just so you know, like un unwarranted, right? So misplaced anger. So for me, because his anger is misplaced and unwarranted, her death sequence is the most disturbing. Uh, entails from the crypt because it's very natural it's very realistic it could really happen to anyone anywhere whereas most of the deaths on tales from the crypt are ridiculously grotesque and gonzo mm -hmm. like we have um joe pesci getting chopped in half by a chainsaw or there's <laughs> yeah. um that you know the sword and the acid and um the one with the magicians like yeah. usually everything is so far just... beyond the norm but this is just so yeah, there's usually there's, a camp or something. Right. There's like an unfortunate naturalness to the scene that just made it very uncomfortable for me. Um, yeah. Anytime someone's like being strangled, it always, yeah, it's always very unsettling to me because it's a very personal, up close, like, act. But it wasn't just strangulation. Mm -hmm. So he does grab her throat, but he, he smashes her head against the glass and you see blood right away and he just keeps doing it. So it's just her bloody and then she crumples into the tub. Yeah. And I mean, I've, I obviously wasn't as a child, but again, this is a rewatch. So like knowing what I know now, like I've been, I've been attacked in the shower by white male partners. Uh, like, so to me, like this violence is fucking real. Oh wow. And I can't, it's just, a really difficult episode. Um, yeah, I think a lot of times when, when Tales of Crypt does kind of peel back that uh, that the, the campy layer and shows a, a real realistic death like that, like that, like you said, that could have, that that people actually die that way. Not yes. a whole lot of people die from getting chopped in half by a chainsaw, but they legit die from acts of domestic violence like that. And, right. And I, and I think he he definitely made a point to to show. I think probably he probably made a point to show it in that manner to show the brutality of you know domestic violence in that in that way. And yeah, like you know when I watched this originally, probably. 10, 15 years ago, I don't think I saw it that way. But now being an older person with a wife and a daughter, I definitely, I'm not going to pretend like it's going to affect me the same way it's going to affect you, but I definitely can understand, like, it was more disturbing to me now than it was back then, just seeing, like, man, that could happen to anybody. I guess uh, the only catharsis comes, and again, this is from, like, the reframing of the, the white man that I watched it. It was like, okay, yeah. maybe this isn't, like, yeah. the most racist thing I have ever seen. He was like, just the scene at the end where he is literally wrestling with his own prejudices. I mean, that's hats off to that. I think yeah. that's the episode's redeeming. Oh, race that's by far like, the best part. Yeah. Um, 
what do you think of like the the tattoo artistry or the tattoo aspects as someone who I, I love neo-traditional art um, and I really liked, I liked the design of the piece. I actually thought when, when I first asked you if I could do this, I thought, well, there's enough time before the episode airs. What if I get like a recreation of that? I'm like, oh, <laughs> I, really, I really love the design. Um, I don't like its implications in the episode, but I think it's a beautiful piece of work. So what I thought was really cool, the tattoo design too, is um, uh, the face looked like her, but not exactly like her. It was right. a, a great representation. I thought that kind of played in really cool with the uh, uh, the mythology be- behind Farouche because it was still a tat. Uh, still obviously, you know, super realistic portraits are difficult to do, but it still looked enough like her to where you knew exactly what it was uh, without being an exact replication. I thought that was really really cool. Yeah, yeah. If they try to do an exact one, because it, it was it was more fall into Uncanny Valley territory. Where this is more like it took me a minute to realize that's who it was um until they pointed it out I'm like oh okay i get it now they don't still linger on too much uh mondo what do you think of this episode yeah no, i know i thought this was a great this was a great episode and when i wasn't i, I didn't i i didn't remember the name but i saw when i, I thought it wasn't going to be on i saw william Friedkin's freakin's name attached to it i'm like well i know he's not going to put his name on something that's going to be bad and um, yeah, and I, I I pretty much am in line with everything Danica said. The it, it's what's really nice about this episode, and and the thing I hated about uh, whatever episode I just gave a one to that you thought was amazing. By everyone, I did hated not it. think it was amazing. I gave it a two or something. <laughs> this will kill you. Uh, this will kill yeah. you. Um, what I like this about is by this, far better. Well, what I like about this is Danny from the first frame or the first five minutes of the episode is positioned right away as the antagonist. And he's basically creating this shitstorm around him. And and you immediately see Nick and um, Scarlet as being the protagonist. Right, right away, that's, that's immediately defined. And at the end of the day, like, Nick does get, not Nick, sorry, uh, Danny does get what he deserved, whereas, uh, whereas obviously um, Scarlet and Nick are, are the, tra- they're the tragedy in all this. But, but, Nick, but Danny still gets his come up at the end. Like, he's a shitbag the whole way. At no point they try to paint him in a positive light. And at the end, he's the guy standing there with his own chest in his hands. Uh, even though, like, it, it, no one's really happy at the end of it. Uh, I do think what's interesting, too, is that being a guy who's played in bands, like, Nick is actually the more realistic portrait of a, of a middle-aged dude in a band. Whereas, like, we had our, we still kind of got our black metal band going, but we're all a bunch of married guys who, after work... Uh, like my drummer's a school bus driver. My other guitar player teaches elementary music school. Elementary music. I, I, I'm, I'm an I'm an engineer. Uh, I'm just picturing Otto from The Simpsons. <laughs> hey, dudes. Yeah, yeah. But um, I, and I thought like it was really cool that they painted um, you know, Nick and uh, Scarlett's relationship as a pure great relationship. Like, yeah, you can be in a band and be a pretty be a a good dude and have a wife who's a good lady and live a good life. Whereas Danny was kind of that guy who just refused to get rid of that rock star life and wanted everyone else to, 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 to still play rock star with him, even though they were ready to say, all right, cool, like, this is my career, but this is my personal life, and they're not one and the same. He felt very stuck in the past, and Scarlett yeah. says something to that effect as well. She's like, you still act like you're teenagers in his basement or whatever. Yes, so. and, and I have friends that, uh, or I should say ex-friends because they went crazy over the whole soul past election <laughs> who are older than I am that I played with bands played in bands when I was 18 years old and they're still like they, they can't hold a relationship down because they still want to be that rock star they still think it's going to happen and I, I'm not going to say that you should never stop following your dreams but it's okay though to also still have the, the two separate worlds and keep those separate and, and and you can like you can be in a band and play in a band but still be a normal a normal human being yeah, you can still function and have relationships. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, over, overall though, like I, I really did enjoy the episode. Except the the, the death scenes were the Tia Carey's death scene was very very brutal and, and and one of the most realistic scenes of violence you'll see in, in Tales from the Crypt. And um, like I still man like that the scene though when he when he slapped Vendetta around really bothered me because mm-hmm. everyone else just kind of stood around like yeah this is just what happens and but and and realistically like. There, I mean, I guarantee you, there are rock stars out there that 100% believe that. that's all. I guarantee you, somebody's out there watching this episode, being like, "Oh yeah, she got what she deserved," and that's it. Just sucks uh, because I know me personally, I couldn't just stand around and watch that happen. 
But then everyone just seemed like it was a, yeah, this is just okay. Um, I did love that the uh, they only show him a couple times, but the the kind of the the bodyguard guy they show, the security guy they show is I forgot his name, but he's a member of the Sex Pistols. Steve Jones, I think. Steve Jones, uh, yeah. founding member of the Sex Pistols, and then Greg Allman being the yeah. being the being the manager, I thought was super cool. It, and then Heavy D, obviously. As Wait, the, what band is he in? Um, <laughs> Leonard Skinner. Oh, okay. Is he in Sticks? <laughs> <laughs> Jethro Stoll. Uh, Almond Brother bands are the Almond Brothers are ridiculously under. I should say underrated band, and that you have all these classic bands that people know of today, like the horrendous Led Zeppelin, the super overrated Beatles. But the Almond Brothers kind of nowadays don't get the, the credit they deserve because they're actually they're actually a really great band and uh, a great guitar work in those bands. And, and then um, uh, Heavy D, uh, mm-hmm. being the being the tattoo, I thought was really really cool, really really nice little touch. Uh, I loved his delivery. It was just it yeah. was very understated yeah. and just like. It was very kind of ethereal. He was good. And the first thing I thought of was like, has he done any other acting work? Because he was really good in this. Actually, he was in um, the Cider House Rules. He was on Boston Public. And uh, he was on the show Bones for a little bit. I haven't watched any of those, but I, I kind of <laughs> want to now because I thought he was so good in this. Uh, I mean. Now that we found love, what are we gonna do with it? I mean, come on! Like, that's no what... bust, his acting chops is no Buster Rhymes. But... <laughs> no Buster Rhymes, no LL Cool J. Uh... My hat is like a shark fin. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, moving on, Jason, what did you think of this episode? Um, I like this quite a bit. I mean, liked as in like, I like it. Like, oh yeah, I mean, I could watch this every day, but. I enjoy, I appreciate this one a lot more, especially I love the last two episodes, the first two episodes of the season, uh, the Slow Kill You None But the Lonely Heart. Um, but, you know, I'm a sucker for early 90s rock and roll aesthetic that kind of like as hair metal is kind of dying out. Um, I'm just kind of a sucker for that, uh, that, uh, that whole scene. Um, again, as you said, this is directed by William Friedkin, uh, director of The French Connection, The Exorcist. Cruising, fun little movie. Yeah, and, um, really unappreciated this movie called Bug, and I think it was in the early two thousands. Oh, that was the one with uh, was it Ashley Michael Shannon? I forgot who the who the woman is. Yes, that so movie like, is actually like in a, it's based on a play or something. Yeah, like in the one room hotel, they're just going crazy over like thinking that they're covered in bugs together for like two hours. Really based on a play too. I think it might be, wow. or is adapted into because it's it's really only takes place in one scene. You can definitely do, do that. That's a super creepy movie. I, I, that's a great yeah. movie. I didn't know he did that. That's cool. Um, did so he yeah, do? Stars... Did he do Exorcist: The Beginning as well? No, no, he didn't do that. Okay, thank, thank, no. thankfully. All right, good, good. good. Yeah, <laughs> but well, which version? There's like Dominion. There's there's like two different versions of that one. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, uh, I remember that movie started off with a cool scene when you see the the battle happening and it zooms out. Everybody's crucified upside down, and then it falls off a cliff after that. <laughs> yeah. After that. Um, what I thought was one thing that I thought was really funny is there's the, the whole opening scene with the band playing, and then the two guys are getting into an argument, and he's pulling T career around, being a jerk. But then there's the drummer and the bassist. They're just ignoring everything. They're just trying to well, keep the beat. And, so- and when they go off. <laughs> And when they go off stage, I'm just imagining in my head that the drummer and the bass are still just on stage. They're like two like robots almost. That's professionalism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they don't know when to like. Well, no one told us to stop, so we're just gonna keep playing. Well, and like as the as the bar is closing, everyone's finally out there still playing. So 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 Jason, we, we you're you play guitar now, so eventually you have to start a band like. Um, uh, you're just not, you're just not, don't worry about it. You're just not midlife crisis yet. In like five years, okay. you'll have a band. Uh, uh, the cardinal rule and the cardinal sin in a band is if no matter what happens, you just keep playing. Mm-hmm. That's a one rule because most people won't recognize when you fuck up. You will, but if you just keep playing, they'll just figure it out. Yeah. A- and if, if you have to just keep turning the distortion up to the can to what you're playing anyways. Right. But yeah, I, thought, I just thought that was really funny. Like, I'm sure it's totally unintentional. It was just like for practical purposes. Well, I, I thought it was interesting is they mentioned how they played all over the world in arenas and now they're back home. Yet the, the front man can't afford his own place to live. Uh, yeah. But also, 
it's if you've ever I've seen some weird stuff happen. Like uh, I'm not even gonna lie, I saw a local metal band here. And this was 15 years ago, probably, where um, the guitarist got kicked out because he answered his phone on stage and stopped playing. What? Yeah, legit happened. That's and amazing. That's the kind of shit I've seen. Weird stuff like that at local shows, but I've never seen from a, a professional band. And you, you would crazy. think this is a professional band. But I also think that uh, William Freakin was going for a little bit of the Axl Rose vibe from the from the front man because Axl was notorious for doing anything that would put the attention on him. Yeah, I mean we'll get in, we'll get into it in a minute, but the the whole band part has nothing to do with the original comic, which I always find very interesting how they adapt these things. But we'll get to that in a moment. Um, so yeah, Danny's played by Yul Vasquez. This is only his second role. Oh, really? Uh, um, and I was going to do this for trivia, but I've got something else. But I'll say it now. So he actually was in a couple bands around that time. Uh, he played in Urgent and Diving for Pearls, which sounds like a weird sex act. Um, <laughs> so he actually is maybe going a little method with his um, performance here. I'm wondering as as being a guy who's probably in similar bands. Um, he went on to do movies like American Gangster, he was in the first season of Russian Doll, and he's also recently in Severance, which I really want to see. The, I think it's Apple TV. Uh, we, Apple TV is just killing it on the stuff they're bringing out and they, their originals, and it's only five bucks a month. It's a great value. Um, Paul Hip plays Nick. He was in the original Bad Lieutenant, which is a crazy-ass movie. He's also He has a small role in Face Off. He was also in Carnival, among a bunch of other things. Tia Carrera, obviously... Well known, she was. She actually was in General Hospital for a long time, which I didn't know. Um, she was in both uh, Wayne's World movies. She was in House. Uh, sorry, she was in Rising Sun. She was in True Lies, and she was in this uh, great little show called Relic Hunter. It was kind of like Indiana Jones meets Lara Croft meets Sci-Fi Channel. So, can I add? I mm-hmm. grew up with all of that, and so to watch her, especially. To watch her coming from Wayne's World, where she's so phenomenal as Cassandra, mm-hmm. like every every Asian American girl wanted to be her. She's so enormously talented when when she's performing, when she's performing with Crucial Taunt, you know. And so to see her in kind of this sidelined role, not just where she's mar- marginalized but brutally murdered, was fucking horrible as a child. Just you know yeah because uh, we have we had somebody to look up to who is in contrast to say like joan chen on twin peaks with her like what is shenanigans reminding us of like what everybody thought of asian americans at that time like oh your mom can't fucking speak english no we had like a we had a beautiful asian american role model who was strong only to have like to have that image flipped around oh she's just disposable that's hard. That's why this episode was hard for That's me. That's interesting. You know, it's kind of cool. I was going to ask you your opinion of her in Wayne's World because I always loved her in Wayne's World, thinking that she mm-hmm. was that they never they never played her. She's always just a power, a strong. She's a, the strong woman character in that in that entire show, that entire that entire movie or movie series was really great. Yeah, and I'm not I, gonna, t- ten year old me like fell in love right away. T- who didn't love Tia Carrera yeah, when they saw yeah, her on, on screen? Like. Um, but not just, because, but yeah, she's obviously a gorgeous woman, but man, th- but the way they portrayed her, the way she acted was just fa- fantastic. Mm-hmm. I do love how strong and charismatic and just incredible she was in those films. What I didn't like was, um, there's a line that Wayne says that really bothers me. It bothered me then and it bothers me now because he first says it about the fucking guitar. He's like, it will be mine. And then he sees oh, yeah. Cassandra and she's like, uh. she will be mine. And it's a refrain that we hear in the first one and the second one. And just like, ah, well, so she's an object to be right. yours. Even though because the first one was directed yeah. by Penelope Spheris, it doesn't objectify her as as horribly as it could have. You know, yeah, I yeah. think it tries he, to steer away from that as best as possible, but the dialogue objectifies her, and yeah. that was I mean, an Wayne, issue for me then and now. Yeah, I mean, Wayne is supposed to be kind of a dopey character to begin with. Uh, no, that that, that makes that makes a lot that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, like, and again, I never saw it that way, but like, it's like, I don't, I don't but, but what I'm trying to say is I don't care how I see it. Like, I love when I hear people like you who tell me what they see in it because I think about it, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes 100 percent sense. <laughs> 
because he does talk. I never thought that he talked about her just like he talks about the guitar, and that's kind of creepy. <laughs> um, so yeah, Vendetta is played by Sherry Rose, who um, low key is kind of like a recurring uh, Telsna Crips actress. I think she was in the episode. I think it's Skin Deep. Um, she plays a really creepy character with like a doll for doll face. Um, and then she's also in oh, Demon yeah. Knights. Oh yeah, okay. Um, I think she is. She's only in there for like a couple seconds. She is, I think, either a waitress or something. She works at the cafe that um, Thomas Hayden Church's character works at. So it's like that scene in the beginning where they find where uh, William Sellers breaking into a car. And then at the very end, towards the end, where they're in the cave, there's a possessed demon woman walking around. I think that's her. Have you ever seen The Wedding Singer? A long... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, so you know when John when John Lovitz is singing Ladies' Night? Yeah. How cool would it be if you did a cover of that but called it Demon Night? It's Demon <laughs> Night. <laughs> I'd pay for that, John Lovitz, if you're out there. I will pay like $35 for this. So there you, go. you let me know. Come on, come on cameo. <laughs> Um, so yeah, she, I, I, I kind of liked her character. Like I, it sucks what happens to her, but I thought she was kind of a fun little character. Um, we all talked about heavy D and Greg Allman of the Allman brothers playing the manager. I used to rock out to Jessica on guitar hero all the time. That was like my jam. I loved it. <laughs> um, but overall, yeah, I, I, the, the creature effects, again, I wish I wanted more of them, which is, you know, oh, I guess it's always good to want more than wanting less, but, um, oh yeah, I want more of those dragons popping out of his chest. That but was really I, cool. I do think it, it's, a. Uh, I think in this situation though, less is more because yeah, everything else is very realistic violence. When that happens, it kind of catches you off guard. Because you don't expect to see the dragon coming out of the chest. Like I, I did not expect to see that. Like I remembered the episode, but did not remember the dragon. Yeah, it was almost like a chest burster in a way. Nothing cool. Um, but yeah, I, I like this episode quite a bit. Quite a bit. Okay, should we talk about the comic? Uh, all you, brother, go for it. Okay. Um, I'm just gonna read a quick synopsis of the comic. It's very different. Um, a younger man's brother begins an affair with his wife. After the three of them go out uh, for a night on the town, the other brother gets a tattoo on his chest of himself, his brother, and his wife, arm in arm. The younger brother and the married woman hatch a plot to murder the husband, where it will look like an accidental slip and fall in the bathroom. The younger brother pins his brother's arms, and the wife clouts him in the head with a club. After he's dead, she glances at his chest and screams in horror. She pulls a gun and shoots dead the younger brother. When the police uh, respond to the shooting, they find her madly scrubbing at her dead husband's chest, unsuccessfully attempting to remove the tattoo, depicting the man with his arms pinned by his brother while his wife raises the club over his head. So, yeah, this is an extremely different uh, adaptation of the Source comic. And that was um, Tell, uh, Haunts of Fear, Volume 1. I'm sorry, volume one, number 10. Um, so, yeah, there's no tattoos coming to life. There's definitely no rock bands. Um, so, yeah, I, I think sometimes this would have been a pretty plain episode if that's if they did that verbatim. Uh, so I'm kind of glad they added a lot of elements to it to kind of elevate. And I do like that in an episode about musicians, they brought in a lot of musicians to act the parts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I always um, say that's kind of cool. You know, so we're not going to have an Al's anecdotes because actually they talk about this episode quite a bit in uh, one of the episodes of How Not to Make a Podcast, I believe it's episode seven, where they have Gil, Adler, and Alan talk about um, getting William Freakin to do this and how Freakin um, insisted that, that there be a live band playing live music and not like a background track they're just kind of miming to. So, which of course, you know, makes a harder production, but definitely enhances the episode. But um, yeah, there's some great stories about how that uh, this episode came together. A lot of good background with Alan Gill. Uh, check out episode seven of How Not to Make a Movie podcast. Oh, uh, real fast. One thing I want to say too is we're talking about musicians. Is that uh, mm -hmm. Tia Carrere actually ha actually put out three records? Oh, really? Uh, as just a, a solo records. Um, I don't want to say any more than that because I really honestly haven't heard them. Um, and I don't want to, to butcher the names because uh, one of them, the newest one she did in 2010, has a uh, it's a Hawaiian album title. 
but uh, I just think that's really cool that that she took kind of like the uh, the image she had from Wayne's World and actually made some music off of it, and I thought it was really neat. Nice. All right. Do we have any final thoughts in this episode? I have one related to the comic. Ooh. Yeah. Never, as somebody who has done this, never, ever, ever get a tattoo that involves, oh, I don't know, the face of a romantic partner. Because you <laughs> never know what's going to fucking happen. So, so you're saying if I ever hook up with Doug Bradley, I'll have to get this <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll have bigger issues. <laughs> Um, uh, you, you know, it's funny is like, uh, my, my wife and I've been together almost 20 years. We got married as babies, but we're all, we've always been very big believers in that you never get your, your lover's name tattooed on you. Cause I've never known a single person that's had a lover's name tattooed on them that it worked out. Yeah. Uh, and this is going back to my friend, Russ, who at 16 got his girlfriend's, his girlfriend's name tattooed on his back. So, uh, uh, shout out to Russ if he's listening. I don't think he is. Uh, well, no, that's why I don't have your name tattooed on me. Not yet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but Jason, though, we're not lovers, so you can totally get a tattooed on you. It's fine. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> but, but then if we become lovers, you'd have to get it removed. Because then, it, then it'd be yeah. weird. Then it would then be weird. Yeah. Jordy would be jealous. <laughs> All right. What do we rate this episode? Danica, one to five. You can do half points. Five. Five. Nice. Mondo. I'm gonna go five too. This is this is this is between four and a half and a five. And if I can't decide, I'm just gonna go higher. I'm gonna say five. I think it's one of the best episodes of Tales from the Crypt. Um, well directed, like the uh, like I I think Danny can't most of the points on this. It's just well directed. Like it's got some uncomfortableness, but at the end, uh, it's a it's a tragedy. It really is a tragedy if you think about it. So uh, I I really love this episode. Right. Mondo, what's your prediction on what I'm gonna do? Three point five. I'm going with the four. Oh, okay. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really, I really like this episode. It's not the top, the top. It's echelon of Tales the Crypt. I really, really like it. Yeah. So and, and there's nothing wrong with the four. Mm-hmm. Like four, four is a that's a great episode. It's a great. No, it's, it, this would be on my list of definitely watch. That's great work. Alrighty. Again, uh, in lieu of Al's anecdotes, go listen to episode seven of How Not to Make a Movie podcast on our feed. We basically spent an hour with um, Vanessa Burroughs, the casting director, Todd Masters, who does like all the FX, and Gil Adler, who d- produced a lot of the episodes. And they just talk about a lot of different great episodes, tell stories about Tim Curry. Um, Elizabeth Taylor, who they were trying to get onto an episode, all kinds of great people. And, um, and just to chime in, like uh, I don't hear any of these episodes in advance, and I'm excited for them to drop on my feed because uh, Al is a great storyteller, mm-hmm. and you can hear how passionate he is and how how happy he is and excited he is to do these episodes. So they're really fun. Yeah. They're really fun. All right, Mondo, give us your song of the day. All right, I was bouncing around a bunch of stuff because I didn't want to do the same band twice. I was really curious. uh, Well, I didn't want to do the same band twice. My first thought was like, let's go 90s Bay Area. But but then at the very last minute, uh, uh, the Crypt Keeper swayed me. Because he said a line at the end. He said, you're never too cold to rock and roll. So there's a band, there's a song by the band Dark Throne who I've used before, and I used uh, one of their songs called Transylvanian Hunger, which is early 90s black metal, and, and that was considered one of the... A million bands have covered that song because uh, because it was just considered one of the early like gems of black metal. But as the band progressed, what I love about Dark Throne is every album, you can tell Fender is a drummer, kind of writes a lot of the music. Uh, Nocturno, Nocturno Culto, um, also known as Ted, <laughs> is his guitar player, and and I can't pronounce Fenner is uh, he goes by Fenner's. I forgot his. I know his name, but I can't pronounce it. Um, uh, really, he has a really great um, uh, Patreon called Fenner's Metal Pact, where he just plays a lot of bands that he falls in love with. And what's cool about him is he's just, he's a historian when it comes to metal. Like you think I know some shit. Like I know like two percent of what he knows. But uh, they released a record in two thousand and six. Uh, called The Cult is Alive. And uh, 
again, Dark Tone, Soulside Journey, their first record was death metal. Then they released uh, A Blaze in Northern Sky, which a lot of people consider to be the first ever Norwegian black metal record. And then they went from there and released all this stuff, and they had ups and downs in their careers, but they they kind of figured, like, found their, their musical, like, where they wanted to be, and they found, they realized they don't, they don't have to get pigeonholed in the sound. They can do whatever, whatever they please. So they re- released a record in 2006 called The Cult is Alive. But right before that, um, they released an EP, which several songs appear on that, just in different forms. But the EP was called Too Old, Too Cold. And uh, one of my favorite songs ever in the history of music, because it's just aggressive and thrashy, but also with that black metal sound and that black metal tinge to it. And uh, the first verse goes, uh, nothing to prove. I'm just a hellish rock and roll freak. You call your metal black. It's just plastic, lame, and weak. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> like, I'm in. And the choruses were too old, were too cold. And it's just about kind of how, as you get older and you listen to more and more music, it's funny because I think we all gravitate to the stuff we fell in love with when we were younger. And not to say that good music doesn't exist at our age. It does. Like, if you're if you try to tell me right now that good music isn't coming out, I'm going to tell you that you're looking in all the wrong places because, I mean, I just spent way too much money at Z Records today to buy new music. Uh, so great music's coming out, but I always feel sometimes when I hear some of these new bands, I just, I can pick out and be like, man, like, it's done before. And then my brain always says, am I just too old and too cold for this shit? Uh, uh, it's a really cool EP, though. The, the, the song's also on the album, The Cult is Alive, the EP Too Old, Too Cold. The cool thing about the album, about the uh, EP it's got a song called High on Cold War. Uh, High on Cold War, which I guess is very very relevant to, nowadays, to, to, to modern times uh, with Grutel from the band Enslaved on vocals. And they do a cover of Sushi and the Banshees' Love in a Void. Uh, which is, I always love when these really underground metal bands do really cool like covers that are outside of their, uh, outside of their, uh, what you would think would be their genre. Uh, shout out to the band Krieg, who also did a cover of uh, uh, Velvet in, was it uh, Venus and Furs or v- Venus and Furs uh, from, um, I can't remember the band name off the top of my head. Velvet Underground. Velvet Underground, thank you. Yeah, like one of the one of the first like ever uh, really S&M songs to come out. But they did a cover of that in a black metal style and just out of this world. Uh, but uh, yeah, great EP, great record. So the song is Too Old, Too Cold by the band Dark Throne, all one word. And uh, you can find it on the EP, Too Old, Too Cold, or the full-length album, The Cult is Alive. Nice. All righty. Um, for trivia, I was just looking this up while you guys were, uh, I was synopsizing the method of tattooing that they're actually doing. And forgive me if I mispronounce this, Pog Badatak. So uh, there are actually different names for it based on uh, what culture is doing it, actually. You know, this is, I guess the one I looked up is the Filipino method. Yeah. Um, it's practiced by hand tapping the ink into the skin using a thorn attached to the end of a stick. The thorn is usually from a lemon plant and is called a site. Um, the bamboo stick to which the thorn is attached is called a gisi. The short stick that is used for hand tapping is called patik. The ink is used from soot and mixed with a little water inside a coconut mixing bowl. And a blade of grass is also used to create a pattern on the skin after it is dipped in ink. After the pattern is drawn, the tattooing session begins. The thorn is dipped into the ink. It follows the pattern drawn before with the blade of grass. This is done using a short bamboo stick with the thorn needle. The same pattern is followed until the whole ink is absorbed from the needle. This method is indeed a form of indigenous art as it utilizes indigenous material as a uh, medium for creation of different artworks. So I'm looking at pictures. It looks really cool, but also sounds really, really painful. Oh, if I can also bring up the area they tattooed on him, the fucking sternum, is the most painful area I've ever gotten fucking tattooed. Not like I fell asleep when I got my sternum. Your sternum? Oh my god! (laughs) So that brings us to our dad advice, and the reason I'm butting in is because I want to get some tattoo advice. So I figured, what two better people to get some tattoo advice from? Tell us some tattoo advice and tattoo stories. 
tips, what to do, what not to do? Dude, I'll, I'll just, well, I'll just say the sternum, uh, I guess you're, you're, Danica is saying the sternum didn't suck for her, but for me, I've never had any problem with any tattoo, but that tattoo I almost tapped out on. Like that was fucking painful. Like don't ever get, if you get your sternum done, like just, just prepare because it's going to suck get the life out of you. So, and honestly, it depends on your threshold of pain and also if you have any pre-existing conditions. So because I have hip dysplasia, the most painful spot on my body I've ever gotten tattooed was down by my ankles since that's where all the nerves are concentrated. That's I didn't feel it. I didn't feel it around my ankles, but I felt it in my hip. Interesting. Wow, that's yeah. crazy. You know, like I've gotten like my whole chest, none of it really hurt except for my sternum. Um, a little bit in the collarbone. I was getting the pins done for my, my pinhead tattoo. Um, but that was really it. That was not too pain. That was really painful. But like um, uh, my best advice I'm going to say is like if you ever recommend an artist to somebody because, you know, they do good work and they tell you it's too expensive and they go to someone cheaper, it's going to be cheaper work. It's going to be bullshit work. Like go – it. People, tattoo artists charge money because they're good at their craft. If someone's trying to bargain with you and say, oh, that guy says 150 I'll do it for 100 it's probably because they're not that good. Um, spend the money. Spend the money. Like, I, I'm not going to lie. My, my arm tattoo over where I can't see. The angel over here, this is a, a kitchen tattoo I got when I was 19. It's a bad no, but I'm probably going to get it removed to get that real estate real done, redone with someone I really want now at the age of 39. Um, but pay money and go to good artists and you're going to get good work. You're going to get I mean, good results. For as permanent as a tattoo is and how expressive it is, yeah, I understand why you wouldn't want to go to the but, best that you can possibly But it's easier to say that at our age than right. it is to say that when you're young and just want to get work done to get work done, you know, like um, but uh, but man, like a, a great tattoo uh, to artists costs money and it's worth every penny you're going to pay. My other advice is to be mindful of the designs that you're choosing. Um, because Farouche even says to Danny, like, yeah, your work tells a story. Your work tells the story yeah. of some guy that got drunk and just like had $30 burning a hole in his pocket. It's shitty oh, work, yeah. you know, like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Shitty story. It's, it's, so. it's true. And, and you know what, like for people that are our age there's and, and, and there's, there's nothing wrong with if you don't like something getting removed and getting someone else done it's okay like um tattoo tattoo artistry has evolved so much over the past 10 20 years that it's ridiculous what some of these artists are doing now and i mean it in the best way possible but there's a reason why good tattoo artists charge you money because they're good at what they do and they're charging for their skills yeah I, I obviously don't have any tattoos, but I love the artistry that is put into it. I love looking at them. Um, I find it fascinating. I, I, I used to live like within walking distance to the Pasadena Convention Center. So after my kids were born, I would just put them in the stroller and take them for these long walks so they would nap. And I would always go by the convention center just to see you know what was going on, like on a random Saturday or Sunday. And I remember one time there was a tattoo festival, tattoo and um, piercing festival. And there was no charge, so I just I was just walking through um, all these displays and all these booths and everything with these two kids in the stroller, just looking at all these cool artwork and everything while the kids were napping. It was really fun. Uh, so let me ask you a question because you're saying you admire the art. Why yeah. haven't Why haven't you gotten any work done? What's What's the holdup? Um, it just never seems something I want to want for myself. Okay, it's it's like going to. I'm not too object people. I'm not objectifying people or. It's more like looking at looking through an art art book. Oh no 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 def no definitely I, I get or that. Like going to going to a museum and just like oh I really appreciate that painting. I don't know if I'd want it in my house. Yeah no um, I I think it's a hundred percent good reason. Yeah no, that's good. I thought about what I would get if I ever did, and probably like I like geographical shapes. It's kind of cool. Like there's like infinity symbol shapes, that kind of thing. Oh, so you're a you're 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 now back in college. Okay. Yeah exactly. <laughs> like I'm just saying, if I was for me, I'll but. I like all. I like lots and lots of different kinds, but I always thought that was kind of cool. Well, that's cool. No, I, I know people that really appreciate the art form, but they're like, I just don't know if I'd ever want anything on me, and that's that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, cool. Is there anything, any other things that you would say not to do? Don't under any circumstances. Uh, no, like again, living in Las Vegas. 
if you've been drinking or you've been getting <laughs> high and a tit and a tattoo artist agrees to tattoo you, uh, they suck at their jobs. They shouldn't be doing work. Um, you should never be under the influence of anything uh, when you go and get work done. People think like, oh, well, no, it's actually going to enhance and heighten your, your senses in a lot of ways and make it even worse. Um, you also bleed more yeah, if you've been drinking. Uh, yeah, definitely, makes sense. definitely bleed more. Um, and also respect your tattoo artist. Like, uh, so my, my, my guy, I'll shout out to Jason Paxman from Broken Dagger, who's done all my chest. He did the... Uh, Jason, have you seen the one on my thigh? My Beyond tattoo on my thigh? Yeah. Like, yeah, he did that one too. And, and did my Cobra Commander one. He's done most of my tattoos. Um, uh, the grid ones, at least. He still, even to this day, like he charges me 150 bucks to just for a consultation. And they do that for a reason. Like, Granted, if I probably told him I couldn't do it, he wouldn't care. But respect your tattoo artist. They charge money for a reason because they're working. When, when you ask them for a consultation, that's work. They don't just draw stuff for free. Like you're asking them to do their job. Uh, so respect your tattoo artist. Uh, respect Wait. their respect their opinions. Why they, Why didn't we have him on the show? Oh, dude, I can get he's a, <laughs> and, and, and he's a dad too. I can get Jason the show, man. Jason would totally come on the show. Yeah, the perfect episode. And but uh, yeah, would have been actually would have been a great episode to have him on. Um, uh, but respect your tattoo artist, man, and and understand like they don't want to put their name on terrible work. Like, I've seen people come in while I'm getting tattooed by him, and they'll be like, oh, can you cover up these dice I got? And he's like, dude, like, I can't. You need to get a removal because nothing I do is going to make you happy. Like, yeah, can I charge you 150 bucks an hour to do some work on it? Definitely. But no one's going to be happy with that, with, with the results. So trust your tattoo artist because they're professionals. You would trust your doctor? Well, you should. Uh, trust your tattoo artist. Um, yeah, and like I said, don't, don't do any illicit substances. Um, you tip tattoo artists? Yes, you definitely yes. tip your tattoo artists. You definitely tip your tattoo artists. So most tattoo artists, the reason why they charge you 150 bucks an hour is because 50% of that goes right to the shop they're working at. It doesn't go into their pocket. Mm-hmm. And most tattoo artists, um, if they do three and a half hours, they'll charge you for three. If a tattoo artist works on you for four hours and charges you for three hours, guess what? That extra hour, take care of them. They're, 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 they're trying to take care of you. You take care of them. Cool. So, Jason, if you had to get a tattoo tomorrow, what would you get? Ah, uh, I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to really uh, see you. Yeah, I'd have to really... Uh... I have to see what the I define the person. I have to see what the vibe is. Have you never have you ever looked at a piece of art and been like, man, that'd be cool to have as a tattoo or a, or a scene from a movie or a comic book or a, anything? No, not really. Just, just like, wonder. Just I, 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 like probably one of the coolest things I have. It's right on my desk. Actually, is uh, when I was at this fair, at this fair, this like art fair, and this guy does scenes from movies using the words from the script. And there's like negative space where the, you can see it. So I have one of the Big Lebowski um, with uh, you know Jeff Bridges and Steve Buscemi and um, what's his name? John Goodman. Uh, John Goodman. Like girls kind of sitting there, and, you, and it's just made up of the words from the script. It's just, really? Yeah. Send me, send I'll, me, I'll send, send me a picture. picture of that you know, it's like my favorite movie of all time. So yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, I, I I haven't seen them at the our fair, and they had it again this week uh, a couple weekends ago. And I want to look for them and see if they had anything. Because I want to ask. I need to find him. I want to see if he'll do Demon Knight. I think that'd be really cool. Which, with, yeah, does, with, with John Lovitz singing the singing the theme John song. Lovitz, John yeah, um, yeah. No, I like art, like hanging around, but um, I don't know. I don't. Dude, nothing. I don't need to embody it. Zero things wrong with that. And I also think that people shouldn't get a tattoo just to say they got a tattoo. Like, get something you want. Get something that's going to mean something yeah. to you. Or, and you know what? If the meaning behind a tattoo is. It looks fucking badass. That's totally cool too. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, uh, Danica, do you have a favorite tattoo you have? Mm. If you can't, <laughs> if you can't, if you can't say it, it's totally cool. It's totally cool. It was last. Like, say, just say like yes. this episode, it's it's something that I simultaneously love and hate, and it okay. was also. Uh, it's also the same tattoo that I advise everyone else against getting. I respect this. All right. Cool. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think that wraps us up. Danica, 
thanks for coming back. Yeah, thank uh, you. Where can, where can people you find you? Um, what do you want to plug? I have nothing really to plug at the moment. Uh, people can find me on Instagram. I guess the only thing is uh, have a graphic novel, Unsustainable, that is being shown at the Institute of Contemporary Art in London at Super the Decriminalized awesome. Features exhibit, which I believe is wrapping up soon. So very, very short time frame people have to catch this show, which is about, um, it's about sex work, so done by sex workers i mean nice. the art is done by sex workers to be <laughs> <honest. Yeah. laughs> all right well again thanks for coming on um next week we will be doing our live episode with william sadler we hope to see you then we appreciate everyone for listening oh really wait jason uh, rah, rah, before rah, rah, rah. we before we go yes, yes we are recording this on thursday the 12th which mm-hmm. is friday the 13th eve so please oh, yes. so please make sure Tonight, you guys leave out your milk and cookies for Jason Voorhees. Okay. We really appreciate it if you would give us a rating and review on iTunes and reading on Spotify. And with that, we thank you for listening to Dads from the Crypts. Adios. (laughs) Follow Dads from the Crypt on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or I will follow you to the grave. (laughs) No, seriously, you really should watch. But be careful what you ask for. You may get it.